0: Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw and on this podcast we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan, the crisis podcast, we're going to be joined by the super impressive Sarah Binder from Pizza Hut. In my interview with Sarah, we chatted in depth about Peter Hut's response to the ongoing COVID-19 crises. Before we listen to that, though, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Hey,
1: Gav. Thanks for having us. Hi, Gav.
0: Now, guys, it really struck me during Sarah's interview at how long this blooming COVID-19 crisis has now lasted and how tough it is for organisations to remain in crisis mode for such a long, sustained period. Karen, when you're in the boardroom advising your clients, how do you recommend organizations cope with maintaining a crisis mindset for such a sustained period while also delivering business as usual?
1: Yeah, I think there's some um, guiding principles that we often share with clients when we think about a sustained crisis. And the first is just being human and acknowledging the impact the crisis has had on your company you know, the mindset of your customers and your employees and really communicating with empathy and keeping people informed, you know, throughout this crisis, a lot of organizations have established channels in order to communicate with their audiences. So keeping stakeholders and people updated as a result of the pandemic, whether it's changes to operations or new protocols that you've adopted. So just keeping that ongoing touch point throughout the crisis. And I think too, as we look through recovery, and I really hope recovery is coming, learning from this and an opportunity for continuous improvement. So seeking that feedback and finding ways to engage in dialogue um, to inform your next steps in your process. But the main takeaway, I think, is just staying true to your values as an organization. And you know, one of the general observations is those companies that took actions aligned with their core values tend to perform better in this sustained crisis. And so I think that's something that we try to instill in our clients when we work with them through a sustained crisis like this.
0: Thank you, Karen. What about you, Gary?
1: Well, I think it's important that
2: organisations have systems in place to ensure that the team handling the crisis doesn't burn out. And I think that's not just in a sustained crisis like we've seen from COVID. Even a crisis that's going on 24-7 in multiple markets over the course of a week Um, can lead to fatigue setting in and that needs to be managed and I think the key is how you set up your response protocol in the first place and put simply I think one of the things we often recommend to clients is you can't have one person or even one team necessarily handle the whole thing what you need to put in place are a and b teams or or more times alternating the response to ensure that everybody has a chance to get some rest now that's straightforward enough Uh, But what becomes crucial in that situation, therefore, is the system that you have in place to capture decisions that have been made, who's executing those decisions, what the next steps are uh, and what the deadlines are. And then what becomes very important is the handover between the two teams. And this is something that we tend to make a big deal of with the clients we're advising at the outset, because it's not always something that people put enough time and effort to. And we now run crisis simulations uh, you know, relatively regularly that are specifically designed to test repeatedly how A team hands over the crisis to the B team, how the B team then hands that back, particularly if they're operating in, in different geographies, because I think that is what gives them the ability to make sure that there is always focus on the issue at hand, but that the people who are taking the important decisions are also getting the chance to rest, to recalibrate and to focus on the other things that they have to do.
0: I think it's a really good point. And often we see one of the barriers to that happening is actually egos at the top of the organization. And we tell motorists that tiredness kills but it's true reputationally in a crisis too. And this week I've spoken to numerous senior figures in business and within government here in the UK who all freely admit to feeling knackered because this crisis just keeps going on and on and on. It'll soon be a year uh, that the crisis has been happening for many of them. And as we can see from events during that time, tiredness inevitably kills reputations at certain points. So good learning for all of us is to ensure that doesn't happen simply because you think, At the top of an organization, that you or your team is irreplaceable for a day or two, because it's not true. You are all irreplaceable for a day or two. Take a break to ensure you're not dangerous at the wheel, is a message for all of us. Right, we'll speak more after we've listened to the interview with Sarah. Each episode of White Swan features an in depth conversation with a senior figure from the world of business, so we get to learn about their crisis experiences and the lessons you need to hear. Our guest on this show is Sarah Binder. Sarah is the Chief Development Officer at Pizza Hut Europe, which operates over 600 takeaway and restaurant huts in the UK and Northern Ireland alone, employing over 14,000 people. Sarah has been leading Pizza Hut's operational response to the challenging COVID 19 pandemic for both their delivery and restaurant businesses, as well as helping it to grow to meet the increased demand for takeaway food. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you very much, Gavin. It's great to be here.
0: That's great to have you. Um, You've got a fantastically big role at Pizza Hut to grow the business despite the pandemic. Can you give us a flavour of that role and also how you came to be in such a role?
3: Yes, of course. Um, I I should add that um, I think this is the first time my new title has actually been used publicly. (laughs) I actually have a legal background and have been um, a lawyer originally in private practice um, with Clifford Chance and then moved into in-house legal roles um, about 10 years ago. So I've been an in-house lawyer and my previous role was chief legal officer at Pizza Hut Europe and UK. But I had started to play a more active role in partnering with our franchisees we're mostly a franchise business across Europe and in the UK and so I've now stepped into a role that will look more at, at how we continue to grow the business as you say despite the pandemic and when I mean growth I mean how we will build more units and continue to expand um, our much-loved brand across, across Europe and the UK.
0: Well congratulations what a great role to have. Now um, I want to take you back to when you first heard the word coronavirus Sarah Can you remember when that was and what your initial thoughts were? And had you any idea of the challenges that would lead for you in your everyday life between then and now?
3: Well, yes, obviously, because I consulted my crystal ball and it meant I knew exactly (laughs) what was going to happen. Uh, No, I definitely did not. I also had no idea that there would be a whole new language that we that we now talk in of bubbling and restrictions and curfews and and everything else. To answer your question, I do remember because uh, Yum Brands, who is the parent company for Pizza Hut, KFC and Taco Bell, was supposed to have their annual franchise conference in Singapore at the very end of February 2020. And there was obviously a discussion early in January about whether it would go ahead. And obviously it eventually got cancelled I think at the start of February so I remember it it slightly ruined my my holiday plans because after the conference I planned to go on holiday for about um, a few days uh, with my husband so I remember thinking that it was it was obviously going to be a big deal but I remember they rescheduled the conference and when they sent an email out rescheduling it they said it will be rescheduled for for mid 2021 (laughs) and I thought how how ridiculous is that I mean This will be over in a couple of months. I can't believe they're pushing it forward a a year, you know, almost a year and a half. And yet here we are at the start of um, 2021. And I think it is extremely unlikely that the conference will happen live in Singapore um, in in mid 2021. So there you go.
0: It's it's great with hindsight, isn't it? I remember we were working on a issue for a client who is big in the sports world. And uh, someone in the MERS office in London told us that we shouldn't be planning to hold events before late summer 2021. And we all thought, you're crazy you're mad, but actually it's now looking like very sensible. (laughs) Now look, it must be very challenging when different parts of a business are hit in different ways by this sort of uh, pandemic or any crisis that you face. So you've got restaurants that can't open, you've got takeaway businesses which are incredibly busy playing a key role in keeping the nation fed. How do you juggle things in a crisis to prioritize accordingly?
3: It's a very good question. One of the things that I always try and check myself, and even having been at at young brands at Pizza Hut for for nearly three years, is I always try and ask myself, "What hat am I wearing?" Because because we have so many different parts of the business and so many operating models in the business, so we actually have three. We have businesses that we own ourselves, so we own um, about thirty delivery units ourselves that we run and manage. So those are our equity business, where we are just like a restaurant owner. We then manage our uk business ourselves so we manage a lot of franchise business in the uk so we provide all of the marketing supply chain all of the services you need for a business and then we also are a master franchisor in europe where our business is largely run by a sole franchisee in that market so for each of those you always have to think of an issue and, and think about which hat am i wearing in this particular scenario so i always kind of start I start with that, I think, as, as the first thing. I find finding the right hat allows me to then plunge into the kind of things I need to be thinking about because they're very different if it's your direct business than if it's your franchisee who runs Poland for you. The role that you, that, that I would play, differs depending on which operating model it is.
0: So that must lead to very complex messaging documents and planning.
3: It does. And I think one of the biggest things is that, I mean, everyone has found this in in COVID. Your approach is always multi-layered, but I think the level of stakeholder engagement and how many different stakeholders you have to have, and how many different messages. I remember just as the crisis was kicking off. I think it was the last day we ended up being in the office, which I think was early March, writing communications that had to go to our UK franchisees, but then also to our European partners and the amount of different iterations of the same message um, was, was quite con- was quite considerable. So you always have to step back and think about your stakeholders and think about the, the dependencies that are going to flow through from that to make sure that you don't miss anyone. And I think, as you know, it really is in that first communication that you do on a particular issue that, that will really set the tone for how you're engaging with whomever your stakeholders happen to be. And I think by March, we could tell that this was clearly going to be a very, very big issue globally and in Europe. And so we were very mindful we had to kind of get that message right from the get-go. That's
0: really interesting. So it's getting the tone right up front is a key priority for you when you're working on these type of events. Um, I mean, how early did you set up to deal with the crises on this? When did you realize of the impact it was really going to have? And when you set up, did you set up In a formal sense to handle a crisis or were you more agile and nimble in that?
3: Yeah, so so taking those two questions um, separately, in terms of when we realized we're obviously part of a global business and because of the impact to the Asian business, our business in Asia, we were obviously able to get some learnings and so things like contactless delivery which became a really key part of how people felt confident to order Takeaway and delivery food in the first lockdown, things like that, and that operational learning, a lot of that had been done for us, and that was very useful because we could take that. That said, we also had another benefit, a bit closer to home, which is because we operate across Europe, and you'll remember that in the first sort of run of the pandemic, if you like, as compared to to the current one, it very much emanated in. Obviously, Italy was the first country in Europe to be very badly affected, so we were able to learn from our European franchisees and our businesses in other parts of Europe about what was clearly happening. And it took a while to realise that this was going to come to the UK sooner or later. And I would say by the end of February, we knew what the UK was going to look like in four weeks because we had seen it happen in in Poland, in Belgium and, and various other countries. So we certainly had more warnings, I think, than most from our own internal group experience but also from what we could see in our in the European parts of our business. I think we set up our COVID, we have a COVID crisis team um, called the CCT and we set up that group which is um, made up of sort of the leaders of key parts across our business um, in the UK. We set that up I think the first week in March was about when we started to, to start to think about what we actually had to do differently in the UK going forward.
0: Okay, so you were, you were in, a, in essence then, slightly more proactive than some in terms of setting that up. And so you're sitting, you've got your team set up, you, you've got multi-layered approach in terms of the people you need to communicate with. Are you communicating with them daily or weekly, or is it multiple times during the day? How, how often were you reaching out?
3: I mean, on the whole, particularly for the first couple of weeks, whilst we were proactive in setting up a group. We would we were dealing with issues reactively because it was very hard to know because particularly the first time around almost every country in europe took a slightly different approach to these issues and it was very hard to know exactly what the approach the government was going to take here which which was in turn going to dictate an awful lot of decisions were you just going to shut restaurants and takeaway and delivery were you going to keep them open what were you going to do about furlough what were you going to do about enforcement of landlord obligations. There were so many things that that obviously all countries were having differently. I think part of our benefit is that we were able to start to articulate to government, this is what we have seen in France or Germany, this is what has caused challenges, you might want to think about this. And I think that was quite helpful. I think the most challenging period for our business in the UK, and therefore when we were communicating the most to our staff in our restaurants and delivery units, which really were the most important people and, and still continue to be the most important people throughout this process. I think at its height, we were communicating daily via WhatsApp messages. And that was at the point where delivery and takeaway businesses were permitted to stay open when the full lockdown was announced. But a lot of the major quick service restaurant players like McDonald's, Burger King, our sister brand KFC. They shut totally in the first lockdown. And so there was a small group of, of pizza delivery businesses still operating. And at that point, that was probably the most challenging point in the point where we, where we were communicating sometimes twice a day with, with our staff.
0: Do you think the staff have become closer to the values of the organization as a result of that? Or do you think it's been, they just saw it as business as usual, cracking on with what they need to do?
3: no i think i think there has been a meaningful change and i think it's very much it's very much a dynamic thing and it's a live thing and i think what was very interesting for us is to your point there's 14,000 employees who work for pizza hut we directly control a very small amount of those we directly employ sorry a very small amount of those most of them are are employed by our franchisees so how you communicate with a group of people who It is in your interest as the brand owner to ensure that that Pizza Hut has a consistent message and that staff feel safe to go to work and that their concerns are being listened to. That is made doubly more difficult when you are not their employer. So there were sort of legal issues to that. But actually, most of them were practical, which was how on earth do you find a way that you can communicate to that group of people? There's not a, you know, people don't have a Pizza Hut email address in a, delivery restaurant etc so just actually the practicalities of how we communicated and it was I think Hanover who suggested uh, the the WhatsApp group that we created of, of thousands of employees um but finding the right mechanism and platform to communicate was actually probably the unlocker to actually successful messaging
0: and do you think that the employees stepped up because they felt they had a role to play in helping the country because we've seen that with other uh, organizations out there. It's actually led to p- businesses becoming more connected to employees and, and actually those employees feeling that they're part of something special.
3: I think this was our lightning bolt moment is that it was, was that was that when we decided that we felt that we had a sort of responsibility, if you like to stay open, we very felt very strongly that actually not everybody could get to a supermarket not everybody can shop online if you think back to March this is when the government was responsible for organizing food packages for all of the millions of vulnerable people there was a real concern for a couple of weeks about access to food and availability to food and there are a surprising amount of people who whether it's for disability or whether it's for any number of reasons aren't able to cook and they do rely on hot takeaway food that's either delivered to them or that they can collect and so We had a number of messages and letters that we got from customers who really were relying on businesses like ours during those early days of the pandemic when actually access to food was complicated. And so we did feel that we had a responsibility to do so. The government was very clear that they didn't want these businesses to close if it was possible to keep them open and I think once we unlocked that which is what I sort of called a sort of our overarching license to operate is we had to be able to legitimately explain to all of our stakeholders why it was important we remained open once we got that which was really around we're here to feed people in a pandemic once we had that it really unlocked the engagement of our employees because it it made sense to everybody why we stayed open and I think one of the key sort of I guess examples of how that played out was we launched right at the start of the pandemic, a very big partnership with Deliveroo. And the partnership was essentially to provide free meals to the NHS, um, NHS workers. And um, I think we contributed, I think over 350,000 meals, during that period I mean it became sort of a whole logistical operation on itself but it was something that our franchisees our customers our staff all really and and head office we all hugely engaged with and were really passionate about seeing through and those were the sorts of things that generated really positive moments and made us feel like we you know we'd done the right thing to stay open.
0: I can imagine this has been an incredibly busy period that we're talking about here. And when you're trying to stay on top of all the issues, and as you said, react to them uh, as you need to, whether that's employees, whether it's franchisees, whether it's media, whether it's political stakeholders, how do you keep the business as usual elements in play despite all of that? Because 2020 was due to be a big year anyway for businesses like yourselves. You know, you've Brexit and all the continuing challenges on food sourcing. Uh, You have all the normal public health arguments which are in play. How do you ensure the good work that you've been doing in those areas continues despite the business being threatened in its very existence?
3: I mean, I talk quite a lot about being ruthless about your priorities. And, you know, every week you have to look at your list of priorities and work out what has to be moved forward and what can wait. I think, you try and get ahead of the issues you need to. But if you can't, I think the big learn we had was don't react to everything. Because if if you'd sat down in April and said, oh, my goodness, this pandemic is still going to be raging the week before Christmas. And in fact, the week before Christmas, they're going to close the ports at Dover and they're still not going to have announced a Brexit deal. You just would have sort of given up, I think. And so I think trying to keep your eye on the short term, I think I learned in a crisis like COVID is actually certainly at the beginning we just had a sense of let's just try and keep operating for another day another day and then it became another week and you just you just kind of keep that rhythm
0: so you have an objective yeah let's stay uh, let's stay above water operationally let's keep it going let's provide a service and then we can see where we can push into as that continues is that the sort of approach
3: exactly and I think you've just got to be really realistic about it and also you have to be really mindful of where all of your staff are and that means everybody from our staff who are serving customers to all of our head office staff right the way through this was an incredibly personal crisis for everybody as they juggled with vulnerable family members elderly family members homeschooling not being able to see anybody all of those issues were all kind of played by that and i think we just had a continuous approach of what can we get done this week what can we achieve and just being really sensitive about where everybody was because it was you know it was incredibly and remains incredibly complicated
0: and when you referred to some of the complications there a moment ago when you talked about dover closing and the borders closing just before christmas uh because of the new mutated strain of covid19 um how did that impact the business you must have thought at that stage it's we you know we're, we're reasonably well through this we know what's going to happen it won't be that complicated but what happened then that's an is that another crisis or is that the same crisis
3: I think it's a crisis within a crisis. And I think sometimes we've got used to the sort of way of operating in COVID that we forget it's still a crisis. It actually hasn't stopped being a crisis from when this got declared as a pandemic. It's continued to be a crisis. It's just like anything, it's had spikes. And I suppose this was a very severe spike. I definitely laughed slightly, probably slightly hysterically, in order not to cry as we kind of got down to I think on the Friday and Saturday about, about how we were going to deal with, with the port closures. I think it just goes to show what is possible. And I had recently, I think at the time, I'd been reading a book about kind of um, the Brexit vote. And I thought about all the arguments there were about Brexit and the idea that we would end up actually exiting the EU with ports closed and no deal the week before Christmas when a lockdown had just been announced. I mean, it just, you couldn't make it up. You just can't, can't make it Worst case scenario. <laughs> and I think it, in a way it cheered me because I thought no one two years ago would have thought this was remotely possible. You know, they would have said it absolutely couldn't be done. And of course, actually, it was done and it was done in on the whole. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it was complicated. Not everything went to plan that week. But I think one thing I would say is I think the partnership that certainly the food industry, and I mean the whole industry end to end and government has built up over this pandemic has been, quite extraordinary and I think you know hats off to the government and particularly DEFRA who've led this effort to make sure that food is accessible and that food is available and they were good from continuously focusing us not just on COVID but thinking about Brexit for a long time going into December 2020. So I think all of those things made it manageable but also the public has a perception now that businesses are finding life difficult, that it's complicated. So look, if you can't get your favourite pizza, because you know, we haven't got enough pineapple toppings that have been flown in from the continent, well, then we'll just have to nod off a pineapple for a couple of weeks while we do. So I think it has probably given rise to a greater sort of deal of pragmatism around consumers around what they can expect. And I think people are sympathetic to that.
0: So were lines of communications very much open during that mini crisis before Christmas with government? I mean, were you? How does that work from your perspective? Are you trying to get ahead of the crisis in terms of what will what it'll mean operationally for you in a few days' time?
3: I think one of the things I always try to start with any stakeholder that I'm talking to is what are their issues and what do they need, and I think it always helps. Particularly, it's no point ringing up anyone in government or, quite frankly, in ours going. What do we do? You need to be very specific about the questions that you need answers to. And so you need to really drill it down. So don't do wide open questions. Ask specific, tight questions. Are we going to be able to do this on January the 1st? If this doesn't happen, what are the alternatives government has in place? So I think speaking to stakeholders and finding out what they're responsible for and what their concerns are allows you to kind of narrow that approach. And I think, yeah, I think that was that was kind of what we did.
0: Now, you've talked about this being such a long crisis. It's been nine months. It'll nearly be a year of a crisis, really, when we look at COVID-19. And that's the much much overused word, unprecedented. Uh, It really is unprecedented. How do you keep the senior team at Pizza Hut going throughout that? Because it's tiring. It's tiring for everyone involved. And I'm guessing at the start, there was many, many meetings happening at all hours. And then it's trying to become a bit more like business as usual in the sense that you're just allowing them to happen when you can manage them. But how do you sustain that period of uh, crises as a senior team?
3: I mean, I think like everybody, you have to acknowledge that everyone will do their best to show up as their best selves and give their best work, but that everyone's going to have days where they say, if I have to be on another Zoom call, you know, I'm just going to give up type thing. So I think you have to be mindful that 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 background, that backdrop has never gone away. I think the two things I'd say is that one thing that we found really helpful was acknowledging that and continuously as a senior team, all acknowledging when we were just having a really bad day and when we were a bit done and actually just sometimes saying, I've looked at my calls this afternoon. I think you can do without me. I'm just going to go for a walk and turn my phone off. I think the other thing that we, I certainly learned is <laughs> I'm not bad at communicating. <laughs> I'm not always good at communicating the thinking behind why I'm communicating something. And I think a big learn for all of us as senior leaders and actually how we communicated effectively across a very large amount of employees was explaining why you're doing something. Explaining what you're doing is actually, the if you want people to understand what you're doing, you need to explain why you're doing it. And that was a real unlock, the thinking behind a decision or a proposal was, I think, quite important. And it allows you to make it much more human. The reason we are doing this is because we're concerned about A, B or C. And and then I find people buy into things much better.
0: That's really interesting. So that why is important for just grabbing people and bringing them with you. And what sort of qualities do you look for in the team around you in a crisis, Sarah?
3: Um, definitely an ability to just muck in and just do what has to be done. I mean, There were lots of different people in our business who ended up doing totally different jobs for three or four months because what they had typically done, like maybe being responsible for reviewing construction plans for building sites in Europe was no longer directly relevant. And we had people rolling up their sleeves to run our partnership with the NHS, which required a huge amount of logistical coordination. So you've got to just be prepared to sort of, I think, operate up and down your normal kind of level. We had lots of senior people who would write hundreds of press releases not press releases but you know comms to staff and things like that and I think an element to accept that 80% is 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 a really good outcome 80% that's great you're not trying to hit 100 so it's just sort of a level of pragmatism and and a lot of common sense I'll probably say sort of you know being prepared to flex being pragmatic they're probably the most important things
0: and when you need to get away from what you talked about turning off the phone and going for a walk is that your go-to place when you need just to clear the head and take a moment away from it all in a crisis.
3: I'd really like to say I'd come up with some really innovative, like, cool thing that I that I took up. Um, do you know what though? I never drank coffee. I had literally got through my entire life without drinking coffee, and I now definitely need at least two cups of coffee a day. No, so, you've given so in. My the coffee. thing was, I basically became a coffee addict. I'm not a coffee snob, though. I've clearly got a long way to go on, on the whole coffee journey. I'm quite a newbie, really, to the whole coffee world. But, um, yeah, I think I took up coffee, basically.
0: Oh, wow. You've become one of those coffee people. That's really interesting. Most people turn to tea in a crisis. So it's interesting you've gone full on in with the coffee. Might maybe experience the crisis you've been facing. Now, um, what's next for you now? You've got a job to grow with the organization, despite the environment that you face, I know you've got over two and a half thousand new positions you're recruiting in the Britain at present. I mean, that's exciting. So what's your big priority beyond just keeping things going operationally?
3: I think that there are a couple, I think that Pizza Hut in the UK has, I think demonstrated that we have a quite a fundamental role to play in our local communities. You know, we aren't just a fast food provider, actually, we provide employment to local communities. We allow people to start their own businesses, you know, through through growing a franchise. We provide a huge amount of opportunities within our businesses to grow to grow your career in your business. And I think we really could see that we played an important role um, in in the community and, and particularly during the crisis. And I think the other thing that was that is really important is that we engage fully in the discussions around the obesity crisis in the UK. There is an obesity crisis in the UK and Pizza Hut wants to be part of understanding how we partner with government to a solution. And those aren't just just words. Those are something we genuinely believe that we need to do. And I think we realise that partnerships with government, with your employees, with your customers, that this continuous dialogue and sort of talking more really was something at Pizza Hut a year ago, we did very little of we didn't have a huge amount of external engagement and now i think we do so i think the overall thing is about talking about pizza hut and the role we play in the community more and and expanding that out as a business who really wants to grow responsibly and sustainably um, in the uk and, and elsewhere
0: So that's really interesting you feel there's been a real learning there in terms of something that's come from the crises, which is going to help you make the business more resilient going forward
3: Yes, I definitely do. I think it did make the business resilient. I think we were perhaps unusual, though, in that we saw both sides of this coin. So because we have a restaurant business and a de- delivery business, we've obviously seen our restaurant business that is run by um, by one of a, a, a master franchisee who runs the restaurant business. We've obviously seen the real pain in that business that has been put together and built up and operated very well over many years, obviously having to go through, through a CVA um, last autumn, along with many other um, hospitality businesses. But we've also seen the real interest in the delivery model and the takeaway model and also supporting franchisees who saw significant growth there and and sort of the pressures that that put on their operation, how we supported them through that. So I think we've seen both sides of this crisis, which I think puts us in a good position to be able to talk about what we can see is going to need to happen in the way forward, particularly in the UK. And I think the agenda is quite long in terms of whether it's resolving business rates, high street issues, those types of problems. They're not going anywhere. And the crisis has probably brought those to the fore that they will also need to be tackled next year as well.
0: That's a good segue to my final question. So um, you're sitting here in January 2021. Where do you think we're going to be at the end of uh, 2021? Put your Mystic Meg hat on.
3: I think that it will feel staggeringly different. And the way that I have certainly approached the start of this new year has been to say it's the fifth quarter of 2020 instead of the first quarter of 2021, which I'm not pretending isn't partly avoiding 2021. But I think it will feel like a year of growth. Businesses will reopen. What's obvious is that through sort of corporate spending, consumer spending that's going to be unleashed. I think everybody wants to go and meet their friends in a restaurant or in a pub, they want to be able to go and do exercise, they want to go to the theatre, they really want to do all those things. And whilst it's obviously an incredibly painful and sort of traumatic time for everybody, you can see there's going to be huge unleashing of a lot of this once the economy opens back up. And I think that's really exciting.
0: That's a great way to uh, finish this interview, uh, Sarah. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us today and for talking us through how you dealt with the unprecedented COVID crisis in such an accomplished manner. Well done to you and your team uh, for getting through it.
3: Thanks so much, Gavin. Cheers. Bye.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Now, I find that chat with Sarah illuminating. I'm joined again by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK to talk about what we've just heard. So it's very clear that Sarah is incredibly well connected with the key stakeholder groups that Pizza Hut needs across Europe. She talked about picking up the phone to get information that enabled her to guide operational decisions when it mattered most. That really struck me, as it feels we don't talk about the importance of good relationships and contacts in a crisis as much as we maybe should. How important are such relationships, Gary?
2: Well, they are crucial. Um, And the reason why is that one thing you want to be able to do as far as you can in a crisis is limit the threats to your ability to operate as a business and in a lot of circumstances those threats emerge from elsewhere um, either from policy or from regulators uh, and if you aren't able to provide clarity to those people about your business about what you're doing about the value uh, about your contribution and about the context in which you're operating or the context in which you're experiencing a particular issue then you're not in control of what information they're receiving about your business, which they are then using to make decisions with the potential to threaten your business. So having that routine and being able to provide clarity and value and even help to shape a response as is required, uh, that can be essential in terms of mitigating against the potential impacts of a crisis. It's important, I think, to recognize that these are not relationships that you want to develop in the midst of a crisis. I mean, we've talked before, the three of us about, Uh, how you don't want to be picking up a phone to a journalist uh, necessarily for the first time whenever uh, your organization is in the spotlight. And it's the same about this wider context. It's about creating a network over time uh, and then showing value to that network over that time. Uh, And I think most smart communicators ensure that they have that network or they're building it or they have an agency in place with that network and that they're active and engaged with it all of the time so that they're able to pick up the phone Whenever they're in trouble.
0: What about you, Karen? Do you agree?
1: Yeah, I agree. Building a relationship in the time of crisis is definitely much more challenging. And I think, you know, a key success factor in a crisis response is just having a clear understanding of who your stakeholders are, what's important to them, and what is it that they need to hear from you. And the importance of nurturing that relationship over time, exactly like Gary said. And so for us, what does that look like if we're counseling a client? You know, keeping them updated on developments and milestones in your company and your organization, inviting them to company events if you're hosting events or um, webinars, sharing stories or content or information that you know will be of interest. And it doesn't always have to be work related. You know, I was thinking of this example, I was talking to someone at an event. He shared that his son um, was obsessed with. Um, hummingbirds and was doing a class project on hummingbirds. And so I came across this great video of a mama hummingbird feeding her babies. And so I shared that video with him and he was very appreciative and it just showed like, oh, she was engaged. She was listening. She was very interested in the conversation. And so, um, you know, we've stayed in touch over time. So I think, you know, maintaining those relationships with stakeholders that have an interest or a stake in your business not just in times of crisis, will help build that trust and confidence in a response if you do find yourself in a difficult spot.
0: Yeah, and it's not just to get information from them or to give them information. Often they can be third-party advocates, something I think we should come uh, onto in more detail in a future episode because I think it's very important in crises and is often the area that is overlooked. And it was clear that Sarah has the right contacts she needs to have to have impact in a crisis it reminded me of that quote from reed hoffman the co-founder of linkedin who said it's better to be the best connected uh, rather than the most connected and i think that sums up why sarah is so good at what she does right that's us done this week uh, thanks very much to karen and gary again for their insightful comments hopefully you've all enjoyed listening to this episode of white swarm the crisis podcast stay safe
1: This one is brought to you by hanover communications and its global crisis network to find out more please visit hanovercoms.com that's hanover h-a-n-o-v-e-r comms c-o-m-m-s dot com